Welcome to The Good Enough Mother. I'm your host, Sophie, a sociologist, motherhood researcher, and single mother. I share evidence-based advice combined with reflections from my own life, and I want to change the conversation and the culture around motherhood. I support women to reclaim an empowered practice of mothering. If you find value in this content and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a patron of the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash the good enough mother or heading to my website, drsophiebrock.com. You are listening to episode number 24, Grieving the Loss of Motherhood. Today I'll be speaking with Sarah Roberts. She's a grief teacher, counsellor, life lover and founder of The Empty Cradle, a private practice that works with women who are involuntarily childless. She has over 25 years experience in counselling, teaching and community work and she brings together a unique combination of professional skills and lived experience to support women who are experiencing motherhood loss. She aims to bring women together in loving community to mourn the loss, be transformed by the grief and create a life they love. She's also completing a Master's of Social Work at the University of Queensland to understand how the construction of motherhood shapes women's experiences of involuntary childlessness and motherhood loss. You can connect further with Sarah through her website, theemptycradle.com. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. And we're going to be having a discussion about involuntary childlessness. So I wondered, though, to start with, if you'd like to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. I would love to. I I have to say, I'm so excited to be here. And look, I just wanted to say like a huge thank you to you for not just taking an interest in this topic, but actually opening up your platform to really kind of shed some light on, on this experience for women. And I guess the reason I was, I was thinking about this this morning as to why this is such a really significant conversation for you to initiate. And I guess what happens for lots of women, so, so my background is as a woman is that I wanted to be a mother. It was one of those things in my life that I always expected at some point would happen. And when it didn't happen for me, I was absolutely taken aback by the level of grief and the sadness that sat there for me around that experience. And I guess the reason that it means so much is that for, for lots of women who are involuntary childless is that we often feel excluded from the social spaces of mothers. And sometimes that's naturally because the way that, you know, motherhood occupies particular social spaces and it's, it's quite demanding of women's time and energy. And so there can either be a sense of exclusion from social spaces of mothers or else to actually be in those social spaces and feel this sense of, of being quite invisible where your lived experience of motherhood loss, it's often treated by, by people in those social spaces as, oh, well, that person's not a mum. So it can be treated as a fact. There can be some assumptions around, well, because of the dominance of the, the idea of choice in relation to, to motherhood, it, it can be assumed often that if you're not a mother, that it was by choice, which can render your experience invisible. And then the next thing is that when it's treated as a fact, it's actually a really profound lived experience that that women go through and so I guess threading back into the gratitude I feel in terms of us being able to create this space for dialogue and I think overarching the experience has been the experience of motherhood and motherhood loss can lead to a lot of division between women there's so much difficulty for women often in processing and it it becomes this topic that that can be really difficult for women to talk about and, and 
find ways to dialogue and, and connect. And I think a really important part of the healing journey for both mothers and not mothers is how do we create that space of dialogue mm. to actually talk about how complex it can be to be a mum, but also how complex it can be to not be a mum when that has not been what you've wanted in your life. So, so that was quite a, an elongated way of saying, you know, thank you to you for opening up the space to have this conversation. I, I feel it's really innovative and, and groundbreaking. A little bit of background to me is my background is in community services work and I worked for many years in child protection and youth work and my background was in, um, in counselling and doing a lot of community work. So I did a lot of worked in HIV prevention in the 90s with young people, worked in homelessness and drug and alcohol and, and that sort of thing. When, when it happened, when, when childlessness happened, I was really shocked, first of all, by the silence, the social silence around that experience and how profound and deep the grief experience was for me. And then secondly, I kind of thought, well, I went, I took myself to go and see uh, a number of therapists, psychologists to try and make sense of the experience. And um, my experience was that I, I had some quite negative experiences. And sometimes it was therapists who, and I, you know, I only had a couple of experiences, so I'm not going to generalize here, but comments that were made around, you know, that being a mum's not all it's cracked up to be, that being a mum's really hard work. And there's, that's absolutely true. But my experience as somebody who was really vulnerable was that it was really dismissive of my grief around that. And then kind of because of my professional background, I thought, why is this such a lack of understanding around this? And so I did a little bit of thinking and investigating and thought, well, I'm going to have to, to work this out for myself in some ways. And I realized that there was just a huge gap in the academic literature and I guess also in the in the feminist literature around the experience and and how women make sense of that experience I guess so I guess for what it did for me and as, as part of my journey into healing has been well how do I take this personal lived experience make some level of impact in in the academic space but also in, in community spaces to actually be able to highlight the experience and, and raise awareness, I guess. Mm, yeah. And that's fascinating. And I, I think too, I mean, I wonder as I'm listening to you and your journey, when, when you talk about the aspects of that grief and the misunderstanding, I imagine, or is there a shift from when a woman is trying to conceive to when they feel themselves or label themselves as childless? Is there a sense of isolation that goes on with the journey of struggling to conceive and then and how does that shift happen from the struggle to conceive to, I guess, an acceptance or the, even the beginning of a grieving process of that loss of motherhood? That is such a good question because what happens for women around involuntary childlessness is that it's like it brings together all of these different threads of an experience. And one of them is, and we might, this might resonate, I guess, for some, for some women, is that one of the experiences is that we live in a cultural context of really low grief literacy. We often have a really limited understanding of, of what grief is and also of what loss is and how that impacts and rolls out in somebody's life. And probably to kind of divert slightly, which is an answer to that, to the question that you've asked, is loss, um, grief is, is a completely normal psychological adjustment process to loss. So basically grief can be pretty much this incredible range of feelings and emotions and it's this lived experience that you go through. And loss can be a loss of anything to which you have an attachment. So it could be an actual physical person, it actually could be 
a sense of a part of yourself. It could be a job. It could be a lived experience. It could be an idea. It could be a sense of who you are or who you expect to be in the world. And so the reason that that impacts then through the whole of the journey is that in my experience of women throughout the the infertility process is that there isn't a really clear starting point either to the losses or to the grieving. So I think back to my own experiences and the losses started from the point at which we realised that conceiving a child was going to be more difficult than we expected so right from that starting point as a young woman and I was in my early 30s when we we started the the process of trying to conceive so kind of early to mid 30 and so I had carried you know this sense of that we would you know (laughs) we would would have this wonderful sexual process that we you know we would make love that there'd be this natural conception that we would wait for three months we'd have this secret that we'd carry that was this relational shared secret once we got past that 12 weeks we would then be able to make this announcement and um and and I guess I'm not alone in terms of carrying those those ideals around that conception Do you know the thing I find so fascinating because I actually see the process of motherhood and the process of adjusting to non-motherhood as almost like this parallel lived experience. Mm -hmm. So it's it's similar in a way to becoming a mum in that there's these amazing joys in the process of becoming a mum, but there's also these kind of losses, losses, losses the whole way along, right? So what happens is that you you then realise, oh, okay, I'm going to have to let go of that dream and you adjust to, okay, there's going to have to be medical intervention. You think there's going to have to be this series of tests. You're, you then become, there's almost this slightly dissociative experience where you disconnect in a way from your body as your body becomes, you know, almost this, this place where all these medical procedures then start to happen. And, you know, you've then got a team of doctors, nurses, um, scientists who come out, you know, with this baby and this, in this kind of syringe that then get, uh, you know, put inside you. And it's, you actually go through this physical experience, which is you're already in a way grieving. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, But the whole, the thing that keeps you going through the whole of those years of IVF, is, and, I, and we did 10 years of trying to conceive. And what keeps you going through that experience is these are the sacrifices I make in order to be a mum. And so there's actually, you're, un, you're unlocking that maternal part of you right from that early, right from the early stages of that journey. So you're actually, and in the same way as I imagine and, and I observe friends who are mothering where it's like, oh, I start this up, I don't like it, but this is, this is, what, this is the mum bit. You know, this is the bit where... I put up with this because this is about what it means to be a mum. So it's a little bit like you're releasing and you're, you're experiencing that from a really early stage in your journey. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cycling of, which is firstly the natural monthly cycle of each month as your period arrives. It's you're not pregnant. You're not pregnant. So you have from kind of mid-cycle onwards, particularly if there's been an implantation um, where you've had a cycle or there's been a, you know that a fetus or an embryo was implanted, you've got this two-week wait of anticipation and then you're you're actually having these grief experiences and these loss experiences the whole way through. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of cycling through keeping positive, anticipation, the loss. Crescendo and the fall. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you, that in a way is a kind of a psychologically difficult and damaging process to navigate your way through. And then what starts to happen is, and this is um, what's called anticipatory loss. And so this, and this is what, what has been fantastic about going back to the grief and loss literature. 
there's different types of losses. So you then start to have anticipatory loss is when you think, for example, of somebody who is caring for somebody, for example, with Alzheimer's and the actual death hasn't happened, but the anticipation of death. So there's losses on the way that person may no longer be able to recognize you, but you're building up to the anticipation of this person's death. And so it's a little bit like you're grieving process you're adjusting to that loss before the loss actually happens so there's a point at which for, for lots of women they're 100 percent on board it's this i want to stay really positive i want to stay really focused i want to do everything i possibly can to create um you know to create and conceive a child and then it starts to slowly do maybe this isn't going to happen you, that thread of a thought starts to seed in your mind and so you start to then go through this anticipatory loss around I don't want that to happen. That's my worst fear of actually not being a mum. And particularly, which is for me, I was so heavily invested in being a mum. I actually didn't imagine, I actually didn't imagine a plan, a second plan. I didn't imagine it not happening and what would life look like for me without children. And I guess my, the way that I've really made sense of that theoretically is that um, it was something that was very deeply embedded into my sense of self and my sense of identity. So then what happens is that you then get to a point where you think this isn't going to happen and then you're dancing with, do I end this journey? At what point do I give up hope? At how much more of my time and energy do I invest into this? If my dream was of a biological child, do I pursue possible adoption? Do I pursue, um, you know, donated eggs or donated sperm? Some people don't have any option around that. Um, and I guess I also wanted to say that part of how I've framed this discussion has been around the, the fertility journey. Some women don't even have access to that. So they may not have a partner. They may not have the financial means. They may not have the emotional means. They may not have the physical means to actually carry and conceive a child. So I guess even though I'm talking quite a bit about my, my personal journey, every single woman will have their own individualized journey and story through this experience. So there's the grappling with the decision-making. There's the grappling with the, is there more I could do? How much more do I invest in this? And that obviously really varies for women as well. And the really important thing that women often struggle with is that sense of regret of how could I have navigated that journey more effectively? What could I have done to make that happen? And when I'm working with women around that decision-making, I'll work with different decision-making models, which will be around the logical, the rational decision-making, looking at the different options. I'll also then really honour women's gut and instinct and their sense of where they're at emotionally mm. and what feels right for them at this point in their life. And the reason that I say that is that I pushed, I didn't acknowledge and, and, and finally say my journey's done until I was 46. And look, that is so beyond the realm of <laughs> what was likely to happen in terms of conception. And the reason I held out that long is that emotionally I was still holding on to hope and I wasn't ready to, to let go at that point. Mm. So then what happens, so you're struggling with the decision, the decision making. You then get to a point where what, and this is what I, I call the void, which is where you might, you may no longer be actively trying but you haven't given up hope. So it's like you haven't said, I'm done. I'm permanently involuntary childless. It's not going to happen. Now I need to 
look at what life looks like for me moving forward. This is the point at which, and, and this is what happened for me and my partner was that we, we had our last kind of final run at IVF at 45. We'd, I think we also had IVF at 43. And during those intervening years, and then it took about another kind of 12 to 18 months before I went, that's it, I'm done, the journey's over. That was the point, I guess, at which we, 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 we obviously weren't using contraception. We weren't actively using um, assisted technology, but we hadn't given up. So it was like, we, we'll leave it up to fate. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, let's just see how it goes. And look, you know, the reason that I gave up IVF was that at 45, I still had collected five eggs and two of them went on to, to grow into embryos and, and the two were transplanted. The reason that I gave up, and this was a very personal decision, was that the eggs at that point were quite slow growing, which often happens with women at an older age. Is that, that, And so when I looked at those eggs, Essentially, the I think it's the mitochondrial DNA breaks down a little bit. And so at that point, I just went, I'm done in terms of taking this risk around the physical health of my child. So I actually see that as, again, being another quite maternal decision to make was that, you know, we could have had more goes at it, but it was, it was that I made that decision that I didn't want to take that risk around um, my child having to live with, with possible disability. and. I don't mean that as a comment around anything around. Um, I think it's a way of, I guess, yeah. it's almost like your experience as a woman, and this is you know, something I'll be interested to hear your perspective on, but we attach so closely womanhood and motherhood mm. as basically one and the same. And you can see, though, how even in your journey of trying to conceive, you're already performing or experiencing some of those narratives of motherhood in terms of self-sacrifice and in terms of putting yeah. your child before yourself. Yeah. The sense of, you know, I, I'm not going to put my needs first in this anymore because I've made the decision to put my future baby's health before that. And it's a really important part. You're exactly right in the sense that there's, there's very much a narrative that says for you to be um, valued as a woman and for you to be worthy as a woman you have to be a mum and it's it's a really strong narrative that I think it actually serves to devalue women but also to to divide women I think it's a really core tool used to divide mothers and not mothers and the reason why I, there's many reasons I struggle with it as a narrative so first of all if a woman chooses to to not have children that's a completely reasonable valid legitimate choice that woman has you know so Very much to offer the world to accept that and i think most exactly. women who make that decision their re response to that is are you sure you might regret that or you might change your mind whereas we don't give that same narrative to a woman when she announces that she's pregnant or, or trying That's to exactly right <laughs> I'm sure you want that <laughs> are you sure you might change your mind yeah yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. In the questions that we ask and how that's revealing of what assumptions we make around what's of value as a woman yeah yeah and you know what's the problem if it if, if for a woman you know in her early 20s by her mid-30s she's in a different place and she's making different decisions some women may change their mind and that's completely legitimate and that's her journey and her story 
and, and have all the answers. Absolutely. You don't have to have it all worked out at 22. Like, um, and that's the point is that, that each of us has these deeply rich lived experiences that usually we usually spend most of our lives actually turning out that, you know, rejecting those fixed beliefs about how life is. It's, it's always ended up being much more complex than you'd expect. And for me, I guess, and this is what I say to involuntary childless women, is that women who are childless by choice have often had quite a few decades ahead of us to actually go, well, you know, they can be role models for us in terms of how do you create a rich and meaningful and generative life that doesn't involve having kids. There aren't many Um, models for that. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think too, for example, the... the, um, you know, the quote about Julia Gillard being willfully barren. And I, I sit there and I think running a goddamn country isn't enough. Being the prime minister and running the country is not enough. She's still a willfully barren woman. It's, so it's just, it's such a product of how we, and look, I have to say it's shifting because I think, I think most of us are much more awake and, and aware. But um, how gender is constructed and, and how we relate to each other based on these, these tropes of gender, which is, which is really problematic, isn't it? And I suppose too, it's, you know, taking that point of how we relate to each other. Do you think that in many ways, this narrative of combining womanhood and motherhood or seeing essentially a woman who either doesn't have children or can't have children as though there is something inherently wrong with her and how that narrative and that assumption, because we've got such an intricate link between Know, revering motherhood as the be-all of womanhood. Do you think that that is what drives that wedge between women who do have children and those who don't and what can actually exacerbate the isolation and grief that women who experience infertility and childlessness go through? I think it's a... My, my honest thinking around that is that I think it's a piece of the puzzle. The danger, I would say, is attributing the whole of it to to the valuing around womanhood yeah yeah and so let me walk through a couple of pieces of that there's absolutely different social spaces that mothers and not mothers inhabit and like we talked about a little bit at the beginning and and often when not mothers are in social spaces of mums their experience can be quite invisible and I think the starting point is around when you, and Gloria Steinem talked about this, is the genesis of patriarchy is about the control of fertility and about the control of women's fertility. And so the thing I find interesting about that is that the biological reality for women is that they've got this set period of time and their fertility is time limited in a way that's, that's quite different for men's fertility. What that means is that there's this kind of broader thinking around that, isn't there, around that to some extent it's about the valuing of mothers. But I actually think there's another dynamic there, which is actually about, I wonder if it's completely about valuing mothers or it's actually more about valuing children. And is it partly about this investment around that the future of humanity is the creation of children and the next generation and the way that we ensure that that happens is that we we sell to women this kind of social role it's about getting in there that, that being a mother is so valued that we're producing children for the future of humanity isn't it interesting we say that there's the revering and the valuing of motherhood and it's put on a pedestal yet 
you know, a lot of what uh, a lot of what I talk about on this platform is also about the total devaluing of mothering work of the work yes. of raising children. Yes. So kind of a living within that tension of both. Yes. And, you know, perhaps it is also about, I mean, Adrian Rich spoke about this, that patriarchy is about controlling women's reproductive capacities. And yes. so potentially it is also that if we have women who enter motherhood and motherhood is a devalued patriarchal institution, then that actually can really confine and trap women in a way. And perhaps women who don't, who aren't within that system have a little bit too much potential power or freedom is what some less and do you know what that's the flip side of it is i don't actually know too many women who are mothering who go wow i feel so valued and and my work is so well resourced and i'm so supported and it's constant we really value mothers (laughs) we don't value mothers and because we don't um value them in supporting them to take an active role in our society in our community and we don't value their voices being heard on platforms in that community but then we also don't value the work that is done within the domestic sphere no we see stay-at-home mums for example as an economic burden not people who are economically contributing yeah it's such an important social function and when I look back to my grief, I actually say the reason I'm grieving this loss because I value motherhood so highly. And I experience similar levels of ambivalence around being a mum that pretty much any mum would experience. So it's that thing where you think, well, sometimes childless women get told that, that somehow they idealise motherhood and that motherhood is we put mothers on a pedestal. And Whereas the truth is that we kind of get, we get how complex the role is. And we haven't had it through lived experience, but we've had a lot of years often to really examine our intentions, to observe the women around us who are parenting. And in the same way that, that, you know, any woman would pretty much look at motherhood and go, wow, there's some real challenges in there. There's some amazing side of it. There's real challenges. I guess our grief in some ways is that it wasn't that we saw motherhood as easy, but it was that we were, we were up for doing it. And this sense of, a sense of vocation around it, a sense of this was really important mm. for me to be able to do this as part of, of my life. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the grieving experience. So getting back to that question around the valuing of motherhood, and you're absolutely right, is that I'm not sure that it's that we value mothers. I actually think it's that we devalue not mothers. Mm. You need to fit into this basket of, of being a mum and mom. You're, you're a deviation if you're if you're not choosing that social role. The second thread I would say in relation to the connection between mothers and not mothers is actually the reality of the grieving process as well. So what happens in grieving is that a lot of the, the grief theory and literature and our understanding of grief has actually been that it's very much based on bereavement, so the loss or through death. That's where a lot of the studies have come from. And we also have a lot of social beliefs about grief as grief being this thing that you go through, you get to the other side, sever all ties to that person or that object to which you're attached. And then somehow you come out new at the other end and you completely leave it behind you. There's a number of grief and loss models now and and theories that actually talk about grief as being this ongoing lived process. And for some people, particularly where it's a quite deep identity-based loss, there there can become a chronicity to the grief in the sense that you might be out of that really acute grieving phase where it's front of mind, but there still can be things that 
whilst grief is not front and centre of everyday experience, you can have moments where it, it comes back up. And the thing that makes it really difficult in the relationship between mothers and not mothers is the triggers to your grief as a not mother, a mother's children, anything to do with mothering and parenthood. So you can, for example, be at Christmas Day and you can kind of go, I really want to build relationships in a really valuable way with my nieces and nephews. And you're kind of there at the table and then the whole discussion around mothering and motherhood and you might feel really tender and raw and basically it's bringing your grief to the surface. That can become a real barrier and a, and a thing that really disconnects you from your mothering friends and family and peers. And that can be really hard because it can be really hard to have that honest conversation around not you as a mum, what you're doing is you're just, you're just bringing my own feelings and my own grief to the surface. So it's really important for me as an involuntary childless woman to actually say, I'm so sorry, what just happened has brought feelings to the surface, but they're my feelings, they're my grief, and I need to own them. And I don't want you as a mum, I just want you to be yourself and to be able to be aware that this is what I'm going through and be aware that this is a really difficult experience. And there's going to be times it's going to be really hard to find the right words to say. Mm. And that's totally okay and totally normal. But I also need to own my grief and own my experience of this. And be able to sit with it because I think so often with grief, others who aren't in it want to fix it. And mm. so it's mm. like if you're experiencing mm. this, if they're seeing pain in, in somebody that they love, they want to try and take that pain away or lessen it. Or Absolutely. It. And what you need is to just have someone sitting with you in the pain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing that's really tricky is given that, you know, that journey I discussed earlier through infertility is there's actually a phase in the, in the infertility journey where you actually be trying, you're trying to problem solve it you're totally open to, you know, if, if you as a mum go, have you tried or, you know. You'll take that up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You go, bring it on. I want to hear about all the possibilities and options. But then it gets to a point of people might start thinking, like, saying things like, you know, you just need to relax or you just need to. They can say things that can be quite almost kind of unhelpful and in a way quite dismissive. It's things like, have you thought of adoption? And you're just like, that never occurred to me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. 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 And, and bless people, they're trying to, what they're doing is they're feeling your pain. They're feeling their pain. They're feeling a bit uncomfortable. And they're kind of trying to join with you to problem solve it because they, they really want you to be able to have a baby. And, and it comes from a good intentioned place. But exactly. I think have us having this conversation, I really hope, opens up and brings some awareness to those who may be listening who are mothers and are likely going to have friends and people in their social circle who are experiencing that, even though, if they don't know about it right now. That's exactly right. And what sort of things yeah. do they say that can actually increase or accentuate the hurt and pain versus acknowledge it? Yeah, yeah. And look, I think what you just described is so critical is around, it's starting in that social context of understanding whether it's a work or a social context that if I ask somebody if they have kids, there could be some tricky personal experience with that. And to be, just to be aware, first of all, that, that that could be a whole complicated Could be a really hard, triggering question. Yeah, yeah. And then second of all, is you just described beautifully, is just be able to sit with it and just go, oh, I'm really you know, really sorry to hear about that must be really painful and, and almost like be open to inviting that person into a conversation if they're feeling like they'd like to talk about it. And also then to kind of hear like, I, I can't 
change that for you but how can I support you? Like, what do you need? Like, do you have times where it's really important? You know, there might be days where I can hang around the kids and it's fine. It doesn't push any buttons. There's other days where it really pushes the buttons. And, and if we can get to a point of really honest connection and being able to be able to say, hey, this is where I'm at at the moment. Because the thing that's really tricky around the grieving process is it's very much shifting sands. So it'll actually change at different phases of the journey and it's, it changes according to individual woman. The other thing that's really important, I think, for childless women is that it's involuntary childless women is for us to connect with each other. And in the same way that it can be so helpful for a mum to connect with other mothers to go, that's normal, that's, you know, here's some strategies, here's some things that work for me, and to really bring together that connecting. Exactly. So Mm. it's really valuable for women to have that connected experience. That's why you started your practice, isn't it? Really. Yeah, yeah, and um, very much about um, bringing women together to make those those social connections. And I mean, I think the thing that once you've really navigated the acute, intense grieving part of the journey, you then actually start to then bump up against possibility. You get to start to bump up against. Hang on, we've got this enormous number of women who are so well educated, who have big chunks of time in their lives. And how can we actually contribute? How can we contribute to communities in this really generative way? I think that part of the importance in valuing care work as well is also acknowledging that women are the ones who carry the burden of care work, regardless of if they're mothers or not, you know, whether that's the caring for, you know, sick loved ones, people who come down in the family with disability, um, aging parents. And so it's also acknowledging the actual, you know, I like to see mothering as a practice as opposed to put as the institution and looking at how plenty of women are mothering even yes. though they may not be mothers yeah and yeah. the value and the, imp- the actual importance of that yeah. not only for our community but for the children of the next generation as well yeah and I think the model that I try and really work with women on is there's two components of it there's the personal mother so one of the things that happens is that that sometimes it can be said to women who are grieving the personal mother of their own child being able to have their own family, having an intergenerational family, that experience, all that comes with that is, is what a woman loses and grieves. Mm. And sometimes what can happen is that someone says, oh, well, you can mother, you can write a book or you can look after native animals or you can... It's another way to dismiss. Yeah? It can be another way of being dismissive. And so what I do with women is I say, it's not actually about being the personal mother. They will all, it's possible that they'll always be the grief of not being able to have been the, the personal mother. Mm. But... And you've almost described it as the practice of mothering, but let's look at that. And you could use the word mothering, you could use the word creating, you could use the word caring, but what are the characteristics perhaps of what you might have hoped to be as a personal mother that you can carry into, I guess, and I'm still struggling for the word for this, and and I don't know whether it's like a universal mother or quite what the word is, but how do you, how might you be able to create or nurture or embody some of those qualities mm. that aren't about you having a personal relationship mm. as a mother, but are actually about being able to do some of the practice of mothering. And, you know, it, it brings me into thinking about the losses that we experience as a culture. And so some of the work that I've been tapping into has been looking at the context in which mothering happens, the way in which women are supported, the context in which involuntary childlessness happens. Mm. 
And one of the losses that is a loss that both mothers and non-mothers and, and actually all community members shared is, is that mothering now happens in these often quite atomized nuclear family units in these yeah. very small community spaces. And essentially, I think there's a, there's a loss that's a shared loss, which is actually the loss of that extended family yeah. in a domestic space. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a collective loss, which is the loss of the extended family networks within either a domestic space or within a very localised community space. And when we think about those losses, when we think about extended family, the thinking is actually usually a vertical sense of family. It's grandparents, parents, children in that vertical intergenerational sense. And when we think of extended family, we actually think of cousins, aunts, uncles, the horizontal family, aunt and uncle over here with their nuclear family unit over here, and that we relate, but there's more of a distance there, I guess. And what that does is it doesn't necessarily leave a fairly clear space for childless women to have a really meaningful, connected relationship mm-hmm. with children um, in a domestic space. So I think about my family, for example, and my two siblings who have children are in the UK. So, and that's a really common example of the mobility of how we have become these atomized economic units that kind of were quite mobile then for work and mm-hmm. for, for a whole range of other reasons. But the work that I came across, which I found so fascinating, was um, a a psychology professor, a woman called Dacia Navarez, her name is, and she looked at family structure and the family structure in which children and mothers flourished the most. And, of course, no surprise, the family structure where mothers and children flourish are extended family structures around particularly looking at Indigenous or social cultures where there's, there's lots of adults or there's more adults on board to do the caring work, to cook the food, to share resources. What we do, the nuclear family structure, the atomized nuclear family structure, dumps so much pressure onto one or two individuals, mm-hmm. possibly with support of grand, you know, parent. The amount of responsibility and the, the burden makes modern parenting to some extent actually a really quite toxic and very stressful experience. Mm. What does that mean, the extended family structure? What does that actually mean for my experience as an involuntary childless woman? And one of the things that I, I feel has been lost is there's, like, me being involuntary childless, that's not a, a new phenomenon. Like, throughout the whole of human history, there have been women who've been unable to have children and they've gone on to make sense of that, have a place in community and live. We actually don't know because, because that story is often, has been lost often to history. We actually don't know what those stories were. But I think back to, for example, me as an individual trying to make sense of this by myself and trying to go, well, what's this journey like and how do I, how do I navigate this and get to a, a really constructive place in this story? And what I feel a sense of grief of is where are my elders? Where are the women in their 70s who've been through this, who maybe in their 30s realised that having a child wasn't going to happen for them? Where are my mentors as a childless woman to bring me through to a place of connection and a place of, you know, 
I think it's about, as you said earlier, when we were talking that you had never considered any alternative to becoming a mother. And I, don't, I think most women don't because yeah. uh, from very little we're raised that that's yeah. what you do. You know, you, that's why there's the questions of when are you getting engaged? Okay, you're married. When are you having a baby? You've got one. When are you having the next? Yeah. Because that's the yeah. narrative that we have. Yeah. I suppose yeah. if we had a model outside of that of what are, you know, who are the beacons in our community and who are the role models who don't have children and maybe purposefully or maybe yeah. well, wasn't through choice, but what is their role? Where is their yes. value? Where is their yeah. place? I have to look this up afterwards, but I think the phrase is allo mothers or like other mothers and in anthropological literature and it actually was looking at women in extended family spaces who served that role yeah. of being primary and other caregivers for these children. And I think there are even stories of some women being able to, you know, lactate and share breastfeeding even. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, we don't have any kind of, in our Western culture, we don't have... Yeah, it's fascinating, things. isn't it? And it's, it's something that I feel is a loss for me as a childless woman, but I actually also think it's a loss for mothers. Yeah. Loss. yeah. It's not meant to mother alone, you know, this is yeah. what so often, but the way that our community structure is set up and just urbanisation, modernisation, globalisation, like these forces... Yeah, have consequences in some ways. Yeah, the way we yeah. experience our intimate lives. Absolutely, having that that contextual analysis in some ways allows you to kind of go. It's not just about me being dysfunctional and not being able to cope. And the other, I guess, the other thing that I find really interesting is I think we really struggle to accommodate the real complexity of women's experiences when I'm working with women around that social context stuff. And it's it's what are the primary messages that women who don't have children would like others to know if they're not ready to completely tell their whole story. So the first thing can be, I don't have children and it's not by choice. And it's, it's important for me to know, for you to know that I'm not out there living this carefree, fancy life where I, you know, where I get to travel the world. And it's, I don't experience it necessarily at this point as being this joyful freedom in my life. And maybe I'll get to a point of that. Maybe I can actually work through the grief and get to a point where I'm, I'm able to have that experience. Um, and the second thing is that it hasn't been easy. So firstly, that, that I don't have children, it's not by choice. The second is that it hasn't been easy, that it's, that it's a complex emotional experience. And, you know, it's that thing where as, as a mum or as a friend, you can't fix it. It's, it's not a fixable thing, but, but it is like you described earlier. It's the being with, it's the, I see your pain. I see that this is really tough. For example, if I'm doing a pregnancy announcement in a social context and I know that someone's really struggling with fertility, I might give them a heads up beforehand and just say, look, I don't want you to say this publicly, but I'm just letting you know so that you can either prepare yourself emotionally, that it's not this shock of it happening or, you know, you might choose to not be there for that. And I, and, and I get that it's not that you're not happy for me. It's that, that this is really painful for you, that your friendship with me and you're really valuable to me in my life. And I really want us to find a way that we can keep connected. To well, I really suppose it's about actually being able to talk as a, yeah. and that being a really big first step because I think so often yeah. people absolutely discomfort in others or they don't know what to say they shut down and don't say anything and yes. that can accentuate and exacerbate isolation and sense of being alone so absolutely yeah, I think that's yeah. great advice to actually 
open the lines of communication as hard yeah. and hard as that may be yeah. and be prepared yeah. for not having expectations of what you'll get back but just knowing, you know, yeah. I'm here. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to say, look, I get that I'm, there's going to be times I'm going to get it wrong. I might say the wrong thing. I might really push your buttons. I just want you to know that that's not what I'm intending to do. And if that does happen, if we can find a space to, to dialogue about that. Yeah. And I think too, you know, something to consider if you're a mother listening is that you're not just a mother in that sense of there there are different touch points of connection that we have with other human beings that exist outside of our role as mothers, even though it can feel so overwhelming and all-consuming. Yeah. And the flip side yeah. of that is if you're a woman who is struggling with infertility or you haven't been able to conceive and you're childless, you know, you're also not just a childless woman. You exactly. Know, you're not just a non So true. It's so, so true. How do we find what unifies us? What's our shared experience of being women? And that we all have these complex journeys and stories and we're all kind of trying to make the best of it and working it out as we go and I just think that's so beautiful that if we can create those spaces for dialogue look I can honestly say that some of the people in my world some of the friends in my world who've been the most compassionate and supportive have been mums and I guess the big thing is that women who don't have children have incredible resilience and capacity to to make their way through this journey. That's, it's almost like you navigate through this really dark night of the soul and it's that journey that actually, that's the journey that changes you and changes who you become. And there are tools and ways that you can navigate through that and just how critically important it is for us to connect as women around our shared experiences of challenges in life and and you know there's elements of the mother mothering experience that are replicated in the elements of the involuntary childlessness experience sometimes it can be really tough being a mum sometimes it can be a real struggle and there's this social expectation of oh no you've got to be you've got to be the the perfect mum or the, the nurturing mum and there's things that mums really struggle with that that become othered and invisible as well and kind of living against constructed ideals whether we're Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that if you do have qualities or you may have things that you aspire to, but we're very much human and to be very compassionate with ourselves and each other around the human experience. Yeah. I think that's a lovely way to end the interview, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing not only your personal experience, but also, you know, your professional experience and the way you help other women. I appreciate it. hope you've resonated with something from today's episode please do reach out and connect with me on instagram or facebook at dr sophie brock or head on over to my website drsophiebrock.com to check out my blog and other offerings